Welcome to the City Reach Baptist Podcast. If you would like more information about the life of our church, please go to our website at cityreach.com.au or like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoy this message. My name is Tom. It's uh, a real privilege to be here. Uh, I don't uh, consider it uh, a light thing at all to open up the Word of God for you guys. I was sharing with um, Pastor Timon before, it's actually um, it was really special to be here because it was on this exact date uh, a year ago that my wife and I first came to Oakton after uh, I'd met uh, Lawson only a couple of weeks earlier and um, he'd asked me to consider being part of the church plan and I'd, I'd never heard of City Reach before so I thought I'd come along and check it out and uh, it was on this exact date a year ago and um, now so much has happened since then. We joined the Marion team, God's uh, done an incredible work there, so it's a real privilege to be here. Uh, before I open the word, uh, I'm just going to pray. Lord, uh, I do thank you for the privilege of opening up your word, and God, I ask now that by your Holy Spirit you would minister to our hearts. Lord, I pray that in spite of uh, my many inadequacies, weaknesses, sin, that you would glorify your great name, that, uh, Lord, I would be invisible and that you would be manifest to all of us here, that you would reveal yourself in a powerful way, give us a greater picture of you, Lord Jesus Christ, in all of your glory, in your majesty. Lord, would you stir up our hearts that we would have a deeper passion, a deeper hunger and a thirst for you, Lord that we, like Paul, would be able to say to live is Christ and to die is gain because you are our treasure, Jesus. Nothing will ever surpass that. And so we commit this time to you in your precious name. Amen. I'd like to pose a bit of a question to all of you to begin with. What is distinctive about the life of a Christian? I wonder what words conjure up in your mind. And I I say that because I think we live in a world now where the lines between true and false Christianity are increasingly blurred. This culture that we live in actually continues to add to the difficulty uh, in Christians actually staying distinct from the world. The technology that we have feeds into this individualistic and selfish culture we live in. We've never been so Uh, connected globally, yet emotionally and spiritually, we've never been so disconnected. And the consumeristic culture we live in means that we have this unhealthy sense of entitlement and this expectancy for instant gratification. So what this does is people uh, treat church like a bit of a shopping center and they come in on the weekend and they grab what they want and then through the week, nothing ever changes. In this post-truth culture where feelings have been elevated above truth, this makes it increasingly difficult to know what is right and what is wrong. So if someone feels that their view of Scripture is right, well, then objective truth is irrelevant because they feel that it's right. And this has meant that many people actually profess to be Christians, but as I said, the lines between who is and who isn't, are so blurred. 
And so in this culture here in Adelaide, what is distinctive about Christians? And some might say community uh, or the way we love each other, acceptance. And of course, these are great things. The church should be known for this. But I want to ask, how is this different to any other community group that gathers, whether it's a sporting team, the LGBT plus community that gathers around like-minded people to support one another, the brunch crowd on a Saturday, the mammals that get out on a Saturday morning in their lycra that love each other and have a great time. How are we as Christians uh, distinct from that? What is distinctive about the life of a Christian? And I think as we uh, go through uh, this passage in Philippians, the Apostle Paul actually wants to detail what is distinct about the Christian life to the church at Philippi in Philippians 1, 27 to 30. And he does this by talking about lives that are worthy of the gospel. And so from this text, Paul is going to show three key markers of what a life worthy of the gospel is, which makes the Christian life distinct. And so I want to go through these three markers of what a life worthy of the gospel is, and then I want to give uh, my case for why Christ is worthy of our lives and why giving our lives to Christ is the most inconceivably joyful thing we could ever do. So Paul begins uh, this section in his letter to the Philippians in verse 27 by saying, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And the verb Paul uses here actually conveys the idea of living as a citizen or conducting duties as a citizen. It's helpful to understand that those in Philippi uh, were actually Roman citizens. The city itself was in Macedonia, but Philippi uh, had been declared a Roman, citizen, uh, Roman city, uh, just the same as if it were in Rome. And this was actually a great benefit uh, to those living there. Now, being a, a Roman citizen meant worshipping the Roman emperor. Because of the status Philippi was given and because of the great privilege this was, uh, loyalty to the emperor was expected in return to having this status. And so these people are trying to navigate lives in a Roman city under Roman rule when uh, they're a a, a reasonably new church and they've just heard Paul explaining to them that they are to live under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. And so Paul wants to draw a clear line between the two. And now we here in Australia live in an anti-authoritarian culture, so we don't really like to say we're loyal to any form of government. But we actually share many similarities with those in Philippi, struggling to realise where their loyalty lies. Does it lie with Caesar, with the Roman emperor, or does it lie wholly and completely with Christ? Our loyalty here in the 21st century seems to be divided with the things of the world. Do we cling to social status or do we cling to Christ? Do we keep quiet about the truths of the exclusivity of the gospel rather than risk being labelled intolerant, a bigot, or the dreaded hater? How do we show, as Paul says, that our citizenship is worthy of the gospel? Now, I used to work for the Department of Immigration. I'm out now, no affiliation with it whatsoever, (laughs) just to put that out there. 
the, uh, the first thing that we would want to know when someone was uh, visiting Australia, when they'd like to come over, is of course their citizenship. And the one piece of documentation we would need for that is their passport. And uh, I don't know if you've ever witnessed this, but you know, the worst thing that can happen when you're traveling, trying to enter another country, and you approach customs and they ask for your passport and you start looking around and you don't know where it is and you're, you're throwing things out of your bag just trying to find this little passport because without it, you actually don't have any evidence of who you are. Another country isn't going to accept your student card as evidence of who you are. They're going to want your passport. Now, uh, if we actually read through the Bible, I think you'll find that our heavenly citizenship is going to be in the fruit of our lives. Paul actually reminds the church of this in Philippians 3, to live as citizens of heaven and therefore uh, conduct your lives in a manner that is going to reflect that. And so this, of course, doesn't mean that you obtain citizenship by the fruit of your lives. The citizenship that is in heaven is a free gift from God by the blood of Jesus Christ. But when you want to show evidence of that citizenship, well, it's going to take form in the way you conduct your lives. And so what are lives worthy of the gospel going to look like for us here? How are we going to show our heavenly citizenship? And so Paul uh, begins by uh, telling them to conduct themselves in a way that is worthy of the gospel. And then, as I said, he details what I think are three specific markers in verses 27 to 28 of this style of living. And then in the end of 28, he says this as in these markers, these distinctives, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction. Them are the, those in opposition to the gospel. So these markers are a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So the fact that you're displaying these characteristics, the fact that you're living as a citizen of heaven, is actually a sign to those in opposition to the gospel that their way, which is not your way, is the way of destruction. And to you... It's a beautiful sign of your salvation from God. The first marker of a life worthy of the gospel is standing firm in one spirit. We see that in the second half of verse 27, after Paul exhorts the Philippians to conduct themselves in a worthy manner, he says, So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. So a life worthy of the gospel means standing firm in one spirit. Now, in the first century church to these Philippians, there wasn't really a great benefit to becoming a Christian, at least from a socioeconomic point of view. Paul's letter to the Philippians is, is commonly dated in the early 60s of the first century, which is only a few years off the great persecution of Nero. Now, the emperor Nero uh, was an emperor that specifically persecuted Christians very hard. It's commonly believed that he used Christians to actually light up his yard in the nighttime by setting them on fire. And so to the Philippians, Paul is exhorting them to conduct yourselves worthy uh, of the gospel. Uh, I'm sure the Philippians are kind of like, well, you know, I, I hear you, Paul, but uh, can't I take advantage of being a Roman citizen? You know, when, when the Romans come and request my loyalty to Caesar, how about I just deny Jesus there? And God's going to be straight with me, right, because he's going to know that I was lying to them. I just don't want any hassle here. I don't want to be lit on fire by Nero. 
And this command to stand firm is actually a military metaphor. It pictures the Philippians as resolute soldiers standing their ground in unity. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, the movie 300. It came out a number of years ago, and it's actually based loosely off uh, the Battle of Thermopylae, uh, which I think was a battle in uh, the 4th century BC by the Spartans um, against the Persians. And it's this picture of uh, these 300 you know, buff men uh, against um, you know, hundreds of thousands of Persians. And the way these, these 300 soldiers actually fought, uh, whether they would stand together in a densely packed mass and they would move in unity with one another. And so they took on hundreds of thousands of soldiers very effectively uh, by actually staying together. And this is actually the picture that the Philippians uh, who are receiving this letter from Paul actually get when he's commanding them to stand firm. And so likewise, we here in Adelaide, City Reach Oakton, we must stand firm upon the truths of the gospel in unity Please don't let this culture of relativism, of post-truth where feelings are more important than truth, please don't let that uh, neglect the necessity to stand firm upon the truths of the gospel. There was a, a well-known church recently, and Pastor Timon actually mentioned this at the conference, that uh, actually made a decision to allow each individual church to hold a different view on same-sex marriage. And this is what happens when we're not standing upon the word of God, when feelings and cultural shifts are held higher than truth. Complete compromise will always follow that. So I urge you today to stand firm in the truths of the gospel. See, our battles today don't quite look the same as the battles of the first century Christians. But this call to stand firm in unity applies now more than ever. When it becomes unacceptable to believe that there is only one name given under heaven by which all must be saved and all who deny that are destined for hell, will you stand firm? When your friends are involved in all sorts of sexual immorality and drunkenness and they think it's just ridiculous that you don't take part in that, will you stand firm? And when this world of relativism and complacency convinces you that you don't need to give up your life for Christ, you don't need to take part in this radical Christianity to be a normal Christian, will you stand firm upon the truths of the gospel? Charles Spurgeon says this of the way our world deceptively lures us away from standing firm. And he he says, Worldly wisdom recommends the path of compromise and talks of moderation. Yes, says the world, be spiritually minded by all means, but do not deny yourself some pleasurable society, an occasional party, or some of the world's entertainment. What's the good of avoiding something when it's so fashionable and everybody does it? And he says, huge numbers of professing Christians have given into this cunning advice to their own eternal ruin. The best thing the devil ever did was convince the world that sustainment and fulfillment lie within the things of the world. 
And I know this. I used to live uh, in this secular world. I came to Christ as an adult at 22, and I lived in this world of parties and pleasure where my hobbies were getting drunk on the weekend or getting high with my friends, and all the while leading a semi-functional life Monday to Friday. And I would have told you I was living the dream. I can't think of how many times I posted that on Facebook on a trip to the Gold Coast or something, living the dream. And it was so empty. While the things of the world may look so good to us in the moment, they are fleeting. Isaiah 46 to 8, all flesh is as grass and the glory uh, and all its beauty is the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Stand firm upon the word of God. Stand firm in the gospel. So the second marker of living a life worthy of the gospel we see in the last section of verse 27. We strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now Paul again uses military language when he says striving for the faith of the gospel. This actually comes from the same word as compete, sometimes translated as laboring. And so laboring within the body of Christ is going to look different from person to person. I certainly don't want to ignore the many facets uh, that we have in the church of laboring alongside one another, whether it's uh, the ushers on a Sunday service uh, handing around the buckets or uh, the coffee cart on the weekend or preparing something for a small group midweek. These are all elements of striving alongside one another. But what I want to focus on today from this text is the way we strive for the faith of the gospel, participating in God's grand plan of redemption by sharing the gospel. Living a life worthy of the gospel means sharing our faith with others, not out of reluctant compulsion, but out of sheer joy that this is something we get to participate Amen. in. Yes. Now, I think if, if we're honest deep down, the reasons why we don't want to share our faith, is either fear, or deep down we haven't actually believed the truths of the gospel. But if you truly believe the gospel is real, that you were dead in your sins, that you have been bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, that you've been brought from death to life, that you stand before the one who stretched out the heavens and breathed life into existence, yes, that you stand before him as holy, blameless, and above reproach, that when God looks at you, he says, my beloved son or daughter, spotless, without blemish, because he looks at you and sees the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross, and now you're brought into deep, harmonious relationship with the Father. If you believe that, and if you believe that all who put their faith in Jesus Christ can have this same thing, then this is the best news you will ever have. This is the element of, of childlike, not childish, childlike faith that I think we've lost. I don't know if you've ever witnessed a young toddler who finds something just so insignificant on the ground and they want to show you it because they think it's just marvelous. <laughs> like a, a leaf off the ground and they just want to show you it because it's just, they think it's so worthy of your attention and so they, they don't care about anything else but you just seeing this leaf. Now, whether the leaf is worthy of 
uh, such an announcement is irrelevant. The child believes it to be important, so they're going to tell you about it. Do you believe the gospel is worthy of people's attention? Now, a lot of people can get discouraged when this topic comes up. It tends to create a bit of a divide, placing unnecessary guilt upon people to share or it makes them feel inadequate and unable to share. And I think what needs to undergird this is an understanding of God's sovereignty and power. I was uh, reading uh, just the other day in Isaiah 52 and, and God says, Was my arm too short to deliver you? Do I lack strength to rescue you? By a mere rebuke, I dry up the sea. God's basically saying, I can do whatever I want. I'm the one who created the heavens and the earth. I can save. My arm is not too short that it cannot save. The reality is that God doesn't need you to save people, but he chooses to involve you because he delights in his children joining in on his grand plan of redemption. This is such an important truth to realize when we look at striving alongside one another for the faith of the gospel. In a few verses at the beginning of chapter 2, Paul begins to encourage the believers by saying, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit... Participation is a key word there. The most common word we use in a church environment to to convey uh, this idea of togetherness is fellowship. You would have heard the term fellowship uh, most often when we're hanging around after the service. We fellowship with one another. The Greek word used for this is koinonia, which uh, conveys this idea of unity by the Spirit. And this is the exact same word that is used at the beginning of chapter 2 that is translated as participation. And so when Paul calls us to participate or strive together for the gospel, there is a spiritual element to that uh, where we're actually joining in on what the Spirit is already doing. There was uh, this story of a dad who was raking up leaves and he had this, this whole yard full of leaves and it was late at night, it was getting dark and cold and uh, dinner was waiting on the table and he knew it was going to take him a while and then all of a sudden his young son comes out, young toddler, and the toddler just wants to help his dad uh, rake up these leaves and so the toddler has this little tiny rake and he's so careful and he's doing like one leaf at a time uh, and you'd think it's painful for the dad to watch because it's going to take him uh, you know, an extra five or six hours for his son to help with these leaves. But the dad looks at his son and just looks at the, the joy on his son's face of actually getting to help his dad rake up leaves. And he thinks, this is so worth it. This is worth however long this is going to take just for the joy of seeing my child want to take part in my work. And so this is exactly the way that God looks upon us. He could get it done so much better without us. Quite frankly, we mess it up a lot of the time. But the joy that God has in having his children actually join in on what he's doing. And so this is what we must remember when we're actually sharing and striving the gospel is that we're not actually initiating anything. We're merely joining in on what God is already doing by his Holy Spirit. Amen. So when you're in the office or at school, and you have an opportunity to share with that coworker or your friend, God knew exactly 
where you were going to be. He knew exactly who you were going to be talking to. Their conversion is not dependent upon you using the right amount of Christianese to English so that they can understand God (laughs) is the one who saves. And so this understanding doesn't stop us from sharing the gospel. It actually propels us deeper into the mission of God because it's relieving to know that God is the one initiating, growing, and sustaining this. And we get to join in on it by uh, striving alongside one another for the faith of the gospel. So the third marker of living a life worthy of the gospel, we're going to see in verse 28 that we're no longer afraid. So Paul says, after he explains the necessity to stand firm and strive for the gospel, that we'll be not frightened in anything by your opponents. So why are we not scared? Because we've been redeemed. And that redemption is secure in Christ. In John 10, when Jesus explains that he is the good shepherd, he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. This is some kind of reassurance. No one will ever snatch you out of the hand of Jesus Christ. And it's this hope that we hold on to in the midst of severe trials and tribulation that means we don't have to be frightened by any of it. All things, whether physical or spiritual, are subject to the supreme God. And this reassurance is absolutely necessary because as we'll read in verse 29, we will suffer for Christ. This is Actually, something that Paul says is granted to us, that we get to suffer for Christ. We know that through suffering, a certain endurance is actually produced, and this painful purification process brings us deeper in communion with Christ, where perfect love casts out fear. And of all the people the Apostle Paul can testify to having no fear in the midst of severe trials because of this comfort from God. So I don't think Paul is saying that we'll never have that initial reaction. I think what he's saying is that at the core, deep down in the pits of our soul, there is a profound assurance that despite what hits us now, an eternity in the immediate presence of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, awaits. Where there are no more tears, no more sorrow, no need for the light of the sun because God himself will be our light. So that in severe trial, you can say like Paul did in 2 Corinthians 6, we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. And like the psalmist in Psalm 118.6, the Lord is with me, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? So these are the markers of what a life worthy of the gospel is. Stand firm, strive together, and we're no longer afraid. But I want to finish by making a case for why Christ is worthy of your life and why giving up your life is the most inconceivably joyful thing we could ever do. So three Uh, Quick points on why he's worthy of your life. He's worthy of your life because he gave up his to redeem yours. Paul will go on after this in chapter 2 to talk about the humility of Christ shown as he descended from the throne of God to the lowest form of humankind, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
And so in uh, verses 6 to 7 of chapter 2, Paul explains the self-giving love of God shown by Christ. And he says, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. What kind of king empties himself for others? What kind of world leader or prime minister sacrifices himself for someone else? Even if you could imagine someone, there is no comparison to the Son of God giving up a quality in the Godhead, leaving heaven and coming to save the very ones who would mock him, who would scourge him, who would beat him, and who would kill him. And this is so worthy of your life. And number two, he's worthy of your life because the life you're clinging to is no life at all. Jesus very clearly says in the Gospels, if you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will find it. I spoke before about the fleeting, empty things of the world. For you to cling to that would be like you being lost in a deep, dark forest and you're trying to keep yourself warm by this little tiny match when there is someone with a roaring fireplace offering you a seat right at the foot of it. This kind of uh, life that we cling to are those that are fearful of death. The kind of life that Christ offers makes death gain. That's why Paul could say to live is Christ, to die is gain. He says to the Philippians, I'm, I'm, I'm torn between the two. I, you know, I want to be with you and I want to see, see labor from my flesh. But you know what I really want? I just want to depart and be with Christ because that's so much better. The life of the flesh is fleeting, but the life in the spirit is rich and fulfilling. Number three, he's worthy of your life because he is God. He is your creator. He is the only one worthy of all worship and praise. Just listen to this in Colossians 1, 15 to 18. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be pre Everything was created through him. Every single person you've ever met was created by him. And he holds everything together. If he were to take away his sovereignty, even if it were possible for a split second, the whole world would descend into utter chaos and destruction. He is the one who breathes life into existence and he has authority over every single thing. He is your creator and because of this he is worthy of of your life. So I'm going to finish uh, by showing why giving up your life to Christ is the most inconceivably joyful thing you could ever do. I think joy is something we've grossly confused in this culture. A couple of weeks ago, I was watching this TED talk um, on uh, how to find sustainable joy. I didn't go looking for it. Uh, it popped up. My wife showed it to me. Uh, which was actually a good thing because it worked well for this illustration. Uh, but the, the premise of this uh, TED talk on finding sustainable joy was this woman talking about how uh, she'd done a ho- years and years of research and uh, what she found was that things uh, like bright colours, like cherry blossoms and rainbows, 
actually bring about joy. And like, I believe that. Who doesn't like seeing a rainbow or bright colours? It's great. But what she was saying then was that uh, if this brings us so much joy, why are schools and nursing homes and hospitals uh, designed like this? And she showed pictures of all of these sort of grey and white buildings and really dreary. And what she was saying was we, we need to create buildings and areas that are bright and colourful to bring joy. And as I said, I think there's an element of truth to that, but the, the fundamental premise of that talk seemed to be that you couldn't have sustainable joy in a somewhat depressing environment with no bright colours. And what I want to say is that is an absolute lie. Because the joy that comes from being reconciled to God the Father through Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit brings a joy that is not determined by your circumstances. Look at the apostles through the book of Acts. They were beaten and threatened and they went away rejoicing. While Paul and Silas are in that dark prison where I'm sure there were no bright colours, they're singing hymns of praise to the Lord. When Jesus is talking to the disciples in John 16, explaining that he's going to have to leave them soon. He says to them, So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Wow. Have you met with the Lord Jesus? Because when you do, your heart rejoices, and that joy that is in you can never be taken from you. It's not determined by fancy colours, holidays, health or wealth. The author of joy is God himself. In Psalm 16, 11, it says, In his presence is the fullness of joy. Giving up your life to Christ is the most inconceivably joyful thing you will ever do. Because the joy that is in Christ is not dependent upon you or the unstable, movable things of the world. So when tough times, sickness or death hits, because inevitably they will, your joy and security is dependent upon the only one who is stable and immovable. The only one who promises to never leave you nor forsake you and who is faithful even when we are faithless. Giving up your life to Christ is the most inconceivably immeasurable joyful thing you could ever do. Let me pray. Father, I thank you that you have promised us a joy that is not bound by anything of this world other than you. And so, Lord, I praise you. I give you all the glory Lord, I pray that your name would be exalted high and above here. And I pray specifically for hearts here that don't have this joy, that don't know uh, the glory that is yours and the life that is also yours. Father, I pray that you would manifest yourself powerfully now by your Holy Spirit. God, I pray uh, against people leaving here and forgetting what has been told, forgetting the great majesty and glory of you, forgetting the sacrifice that you made, forgetting that we have been bought with such a high price with the precious blood of Jesus Christ.
I pray that this word would take deep root within the hearts of all of us here so that we could, like Paul, say to live is Christ and to die is gain because, Lord, we have found our treasure and that treasure is in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. So, Lord, we give you glory. We give you thanksgiving. And we praise your name, the name that is above every single name, the name at which every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We commit this to you in your precious name. Amen.